On the previous episode of Absinthium Kingdom, this happened. found me again. Wow, what was that about? Who knows? Guess you'll just have to listen to that episode. But right now, it's time for... Absinthium Kingdom, or The Memoirs of Fubsy Pot Valiant, Mediocre Surrealist. Volume 1, Episode 2, Part 1, All the Shores Between the Seas. Written and performed by Ricky Simons. Music also by Ricky Simons. Some cat sounds by Tavisha Wolfgarth Simons. And Pippi. Act 1 I woke up the other day and discovered I was lost at sea. I live on a boat, a light ship, and it's called the Elephant's Friend, or Der Friendes Elephanten as it's inscribed on the hull. It's red and white and about 70 feet long. It's like a tugboat with a massively bright lantern fixed to the top of the mast behind the pilot house right between two radio towers. Lightships act as mobile lighthouses for use in parts of the sea with lots of traffic but no place to build a lighthouse on. But the elephant's friend doesn't go anywhere or light up anything. It's always up on jacks, on dry land, surrounded on all four sides by the high walls of a completely enclosed garden courtyard. But that day the courtyard vanished and was replaced by a sea. There shouldn't have been a sea. There should have been a city. My city. Absinthium Kingdom. Absinthium Kingdom is hidden in the Antarctic. And at first I thought maybe there had been a terrible flood. Maybe the ice walls that surround the city had finally melted from all the global warming happening in the modern world. But that didn't seem right. I'm not a climatologist, but I don't think it works that fast. Besides, the city was protected by a barrier from another universe, and everything there was just a protrusion into Earth's reality from that universe. Many surrealists go on expeditions to that other universe, called Orphic Arctica, and I've heard that there's an ocean there, but I didn't think this was it either. For one, I was breathing just fine. You have to wear a spacesuit in Orphic Arctica on account of all the alien non-Euclidean structures and the non-linear events that interfere with your internal organs. I was having no problem breathing as I stood on the bow of the elephant's friend. There were no alien non-Euclidean structures here. Also my organs were still on the inside of my body. Which was a relief. Whew. Everywhere Dolly and I looked there was only water. The sky was a deep azure blue that deepened into purple the higher you went. 
The water was calm. There were few waves in sight. No clouds. It was just me and my cat, Dali, alone on some other ocean. And some kind of irritating, repetitive music. Dali was pricking up his ears, scanning over the bow of the ship, looking disturbed. What was this music? It was melodic and repetitious, like something that used to be played in the elevators they had in the modern world when I was a child. But it was coming from everywhere, all over the ocean, from every direction. Oh no, was I on an elevator planet? I cupped my hands to my mouth and called out over the sea. Hello? Someone out there playing music? Nothing. I moved back from the bow, feeling tired and hot. I took off my duffel coat and my hat and tossed them into my cabin. The air was a little heavy. It was humid, I realized. <sighs> Humidity isn't something we have in Absinthium Kingdom. I frowned. How did people ride their bicycles in weather like this? That was my first thought. My second thought was, oh no. I actually said this out loud, because when I looked straight up, I saw what I thought was a rainbow, but was in fact a ring system, bisecting the sky, like the kind the planet Saturn has. But this wasn't Saturn, because there were two suns beyond the rings. One was small and yellow, and the other was large and very red, spreading out across the horizon like a heavy-lidded eye. My third thought was that my landlady, Frau Pfeifferbaum, was going to be very upset. I leased the elephant's friend from her at a hundred sterling a month, and it would be February 1st in about two days. As usual, I was down to my last 150 sterling. I'd like to avoid a late fee if possible. I suddenly remembered that I had never sailed in all my life, uh -oh. and I had no idea how to navigate a ship or even turn on the engine. Did the engine work? Where was the engine? I really started to worry about the late fee then. I took the spiral staircase up to the ship's pilot house and looked around the baffling array of instruments. There were several glass panel gauges, many circuit switches, a set of dials and a microphone that I was fairly certain was attached to a radio, and two throttles on pedestals on either side of the wooden steering wheel. There was another set of controls for the main lantern, which also looked inexplicably uninviting. Why did I live on a boat for nearly 10 years if I didn't know how to work any of it? I asked myself. Mm. Because it wasn't supposed to need working, I reminded myself. I agreed with me. Though the curious, creative person in me found the unknown array of instruments interesting, Ooh. the herd animal in me thought it best to keep my head down and avoid exploring. Stay with the pack. At least you get eaten, I warned myself. I told myself I didn't know what I was talking about, and this was an unworkable metaphor. Yes. The only time I ever spent in the pilot house was to read my imported copies of National Geographic. Mm. 
I had a very comfortable hammock behind the wheel set up right next to a tall painted bookshelf. I looked over the glass-covered gauges and metal throttle things with bafflement. I stood there shaking my head and said to Dali, Well, how do you think this thing works? Dali said nothing because he's a cat. It's not that I mind claustrophobic spaces. My own cabin is an organized mess of clay maquettes, easels, paint tubes, and reference books, but it's a clutter I understand, a chaos I'm familiar with. But this pilot house was too much. It was someone else's organized chaos. I searched for an operating manual, and after a fruitless hour, I began to wonder if I'd ever find anything. My landlady, Frau Pfeifferbaum, is a dreamer of objects, the kind of surrealist who wakes up to find the things they dreamt about sitting by their bedside. And the elephant's friend is one of those dreams. Would an old woman with the power to will a 70-foot lightship into existence, complete with engine and ballast and anchor and all the accoutrements of a hand-built vessel, also dream the operator's manual into reality? Oh well, the answer turned out to be yes, and I found it in a dusty cupboard over the front window. The only problem was that it was in German. Frau Pfeifferbaum's native tongue. <sighs> Baby steps. I understand conversational German, of course. You couldn't live in Absinthium Kingdom and not know at least a little German and French. But this wasn't conversational. This was the most German German I had ever seen. Technical German. Dali, I said to my cat, I think I can understand some of this manual, but unfortunately it looks like Frau Pfeifferbaum knew very little about boats when she dreamt this one into existence. Dali twitched his tail and looked irritated. I think the music was starting to get to him. I continued and said, I mean, listen to this translation. Make a sandwich and feed the engine. You can only depress the starter switch after the engine has eaten. Any sandwich will do. Except egg. The elephant's friend doesn't like egg. I looked at Dali and said, Why does it need a sandwich? Have we ever been in the engine room? Again, no help from Dali. I should have made him a parrot. The instructions went on to explain that power must be established first, and that I should be sure that the ship's banquet box was fully charged. That was a good point, since I couldn't remember when the last time it was I fed a poem to the banquet box. Dali was perturbed with everything and went off into the main cabin to pout or lick himself or both, while I walked over to the center of the deck with my navy blue writing set and a fresh sheet of yellow paper. I knelt before the lacquered banquet box, which resembled a Mexican lacquerware storage trunk. It was black and decorated in images of marigolds and quail and was adorned with bell-shaped fittings that connected it to the deck of the ship via a tangle of cables and hoses. Sitting on the deck under the weird blue and purple sky, I fiddled with the brass nibs and dark brown ink bottles of my writing set while I tried to find inspiration. Hmm. Banquet boxes are probably the greatest devices ever dreamed into existence. They're the somniferous fruit of the famous surrealist Hugo Bafazzola's greatest fever dream ever. Everyone in the kingdom uses one to make electricity and water for their homes. It even disposes of sewage. All it asks for in exchange is a poem. I don't know how it works, and I especially don't want to know how it gets rid of waste, 
but the genius surrealists at the institute figured out how to duplicate them 70 years ago, and everyone's lives were immediately improved. Except if your poetry was anomalous, like mine. The banquet box began making little chirping sounds as if a bird were trapped inside. It did that sometimes when it anticipated a poetic meal on the way. Give me a minute, please, I said, holding up a finger. I concentrated, thought a while, then wrote my lines. There. I cleared my throat and held up the paper to the light and read aloud, How can we sleep if the sun is always up, shining down and trying to kill us? There was a long pause, and after a time the box made a sort of questioning utterance, as if it were saying, Come again? Then nothing. This was what I didn't understand about poetry. People who claim to be experts on the subject tell me I need to be honest with my feelings and that whatever was my rawest emotion was the crux of the subject. Well, at that moment, a big red alien sun and a little yellow one were making me miserable. I read it aloud again. The box made a raspberry sound. Well, as far as critiques go, I suppose that was as detailed analysis as any. I retreated to my cabin. Maybe if I got out of the sunlight, I could find my muse. But I had made a terrible mistake. I walked too close to a window where Dali was attempting to take a nap. Uh-oh. I love Dali, obviously. I mean, I made him from clay and brought him to life. He's like my child, I suppose. Or maybe a do-it-yourself roommate. But he has an abundance of emotional problems. For instance... I can only safely brush him if he's watching himself in the mirror. It might be that he's just a narcissist, but it feels kind of like a weird cat masturbation. If I stop brushing him too soon, he bites me. If I go too long, he also bites me. So he knows who he is if he sees himself in the mirror, but I don't know if he knows who I am. He seems to lose any connection with me if my image is filtered through glass. This includes windows. When Dali saw me through the window, he snapped into a fury, hissing and swatting at the glass, trying to get at me. Dali! I shouted from outside. It's me, Fubsy! I'm coming in! Don't attack me! But it was no use. There was no way I was getting back in. He left the window, but I could hear him in there hissing and yowling and breaking things. I'd have to wait until he calmed down before entering. I hoped he didn't break any chairs this time. <sighs> Act 2 An hour went by. I found shelter from the alien suns under the roof of the pilot house, which luckily had an exterior ladder as well as an interior stairwell. Dolly was still yelling below. I thought he would have tired himself out by now. It was times like this that I thought about my pen friend, Ollie. We've never met, but Ollie and I have been writing to each other for about 15 years. It started about five years after I first fell into Absinthium Kingdom. My parents had perished in the explosion in the sky, and I was left with no one, really. So I wrote a letter and addressed it to any other pot valiant in the world. And somehow, she got it. 
Of course, I made Dali from Clay and became a surrealist about four years before I wrote to Ollie. And things got a little less lonely when I did that. But I still needed some kind of normal human contact. The people in Absinthium Kingdom can be very generous and kind when they want to be. But they aren't exactly human anymore. And even the human looking ones certainly aren't normal. The professors at my boarding school, Mimsy's Musery of Swirling Nostalgics, tried their best to acclimate me to surrealist society when I arrived here in 1980. And they were mostly very gregarious, but a bit difficult for a child from the modern world to get used to. For example, Smythe La Femme, my dorm parent, was very good to me, but he kept his tiny head in a birdcage on his shoulders and it moved about freely from perch to perch. I never really liked to watch him eat or drink because he would squat into his open neck hole and make a potty face with every swallow. I think I had a couple of school friends at Mimsy's Musery, but their names are mostly lost to me now. Except for Thiago Muscovy, but he's my nemesis and the less I talk about him the better. Mean old Thiago. What an asshole. Oh, sorry. Since I still had my writing supplies out, I decided to write to Ollie. I watched the sky for a time, mm -hmm. and then I wrote my letter. As I finished, I heard Dali start up again with his yowling. I put my face close to the floor of the pilot house and yelled down to him. Dali, calm down and listen to this. I wrote a very poignant letter to Ollie. It goes like this. Dear Ollie, it's amazing how much time human beings and their pets spend inside little boxes in order to save themselves from weather. Sincerely, Fubsy. Dali stopped screaming, but only because he was startled by the sound of the radio transceiver coming on. The banquet box had heard my letter and thought it was a poem. I felt I should correct it, but I kept my mouth shut. It's hard to stick with something that seems wrong, even if it gives you good results. Apparently, I had tuned the radio to an active channel when I was fiddling with it earlier, because now a man's voice was suddenly coming over it. Hi, bonjour. Hello? Ni hao? Barev? Kaikso? Hella? Hello? Shlobachibi? Hopper Nut Blue? I picked up the mic and pressed the button without thinking and interrupted. Yes, hello? Is someone there? Over? The voice said. Oh, English, an easy one. And yes, my friend, someone is always there. This is the universe after all. That's right, that's what I'm saying. He had what I would call an equestrian voice, like he was going to ride off into the sunset with a conversation at any moment. The line went quiet. After a time, I replied, Are you... the universe? Over? There was that terrible pause again, and then he said, We're all a tiny chunk of the universe, my friend. Just chunks with names. Now, that's how we tell each other apart. By naming our chunks. What's your name, little universe chunk? Uh, Fubsy, over, I said. Silence, then. Well, hello, Fubsy over. <laughs> no, Fubsy, not Fubsy over. Uh, over. Another pause. Why do you keep saying over, Fubsy? Replied the man. I said, aren't you supposed to do that when you finish the sentence on the radio? Um, uh, over? The man laughed. 
<laughs> oh, I forgot about that old acorn. All right, then. We'll do it over. Over. Over, 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 over. We'll do it over? Over? Hello, over. Um, hi, over. Who is this? Over. Uh, Fubsy? Over? Hello, Fubsy. I am known as the Bicycle Thief. Uh, over. You steal bicycles? Over? Judge not, least you be, uh, something, something biblical, probably, said the Bicycle Thief. Now, now, now. How in the multiverse did you get placed on hold, Fubsy? Over. This confused me greatly, but I pressed the mic button and replied, I don't understand that question, but I woke up this morning and found myself, my cat, and my boat in the middle of the ocean. Somewhere. Over. Yes, I can see that. I'm picking up your coordinates. Then he said, matter-of-factly, Here's the thing. When someone gets sent to one of the holding planets, I get an alert. Over. What does that mean? Over? You're on planet drowning in the White Corn Colonel's galaxy. Over. The White Corn Colonel's galaxy? That's a silly name for a galaxy, isn't it? Over. Your galaxy is named after a goddess who sprayed the heavens with her breast milk. Over. Fair enough. Over. Listen up, said the bicycle thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anytime someone gets put on hold, they end up in the White Corn Colonel's galaxy. Obviously. Over. I'm still horribly confused, over. It's like this. Where specifically are you from, Fubsy? Over. He sounded a little frustrated with me, but he remained patient. I said, Well, you seem to know I'm from the Milky Way galaxy, but specifically, I live on Rupublique, Grunewald Hill, Upper Doggerel, Absinthium Kingdom, in the Antarctic, on Earth. Uh, over. Okay, I know that one. He chirped. The home of the Surrealists with the bamboo bicycles and the funny eyebrows. The people of your country don't believe in personal or portable telephones, though I can tell you they do exist. But you do use phone booths, so... You know how when you want to use a phone booth, but you have to wear black if you want to talk to a friend, but you have to wear green if you need to contact an operator? And not just any green, a fancy green with a little flower in your buttonhole. Over. Yes, over, I said. He continued, saying... Well, when you're put on universal hold, it's like you're wearing the nicest green suit with the fanciest flower. You've waited all day in the queue for the phone, and you've dialed the operator only to be put on hold. That's why you can hear music on Drowning. It's a holding planet. Someone has put you on universal hold. Only physically. Over, over, over. Dead dog a rover. Over. <sighs> why is the planet called Drowning? I asked, then added. Over. Well... Most people don't arrive in boats. Over. I dislike this revelation. Over. The bicycle thief said, I suppose death isn't an option for you. Over. Eh, I'd like it not to be, please. Over. I stressed. Hmm. You seem like a nice, emasculated fellow, Fubsy. So let me check my inventory and see if I have anything that can help you out. Let me put you on hold. Just a minute. Doot, doot, doot. Over. Oh, no. Over. I cried. The air went dead and my heart went thump. He came back on quickly and said, Don't worry. It's regular hold, not planetary exile hold. Nope. Over. 
the line went quiet. During this time, the music of Planet Drowning seemed to increase in volume and density. Before this moment, and whether it was due to the rush of my anxiety, which was now absent in this pause, I hadn't noticed how hopeless it sounded. It was like a waltz into oblivion up a stairway made of minor chords. I became very sad while the lullaby burrowed itself further into my mind and I was reminded of the maggot of a blowfly eating its way through dead flesh, not because it's malicious, but because it has no choice. All any of us can be in life is a collection of our discomforts and the complementary ways in which we adjust ourselves to suit those discomforts. Unless we're born with some physical challenges, we all arrive on Earth on equal mental footing. But as we push off from childhood and run towards adulthood, we sometimes become comfortable with bad habits. My worst habit is that I seek loneliness, I think. It must be something like that. And this music wasn't helping. It felt like an anvil around my neck, pulling me to the floor, enveloping me in the blackness of depression. I was on my back. I didn't want to get up. I just wanted to let go and not feel any of this anymore. I didn't want to die, necessarily. I just wanted this feeling to stop. And if death was the way forward and away from pain, it so be it. Just then, the bicycle thief crackled over the radio, and I sprang to my feet as he said, Hey there! Did you say you have a cat? Over? It was that word, cat, that brought me back to life. Animals were the only people who could lift me up when I fall. Yes! His name is Dali! Over! I croaked. Interesting. Which direction is the little guy facing? Over. I'll check. Over. And as I opened the outer door to the pilot house and stepped onto the exterior ladder, I saw that Dali was somehow already out of the cabin. The door to the cabin was still closed. He was very good at doing that sort of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he broke a window to get out. I monitored his movements and went back inside and gave my report to the bicycle thief, saying, He's just at the bow of the ship, facing away from the big red sun. The ring system is also behind us. Does that mean anything? Over? Yes, 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 that's the stuff. He can probably see the doorway. You'll have to sail in that direction. The doorway is only about 400 meters away, but you'll have to go now. It will only be there another 30 minutes. Over. Then it's over. So, so over. When is the next one over? In exactly 37 years, 28 days, and 3 hours, and 22 seconds. 19 seconds. 18 seconds. Over. Uh, and I have a problem, Monsieur Bicycle Thief. The engines don't work, or at least I don't know how to work them yet. Also, I don't know where the engine room is. Over. Ah, okay. Exactly why do you have a boat, Fubsy? Wait, never mind. I never understood Surrealist. Okay, I'm sending you something to help you out. Grab your cat and get inside and hang on. Over. Sending? What are you sending? How are you sending anything? I was cut off by a sonic boom that overcame the humidity and replaced it with rolling thunder. I dropped the mic and ran outside. The sky began to darken and shift from blues and purples to a hellish red. I slid down the exterior ladder and ran towards Dali. 
He didn't attack me when I scooped him up. As we stood at the bow of the elephant's friend, I first thought his passivity came from sheer exhaustion. But when I turned around to take him back into the cabin, I shouted in terror. <laughs> Even as a 20-year citizen of Absinthium Kingdom, a city where some people bring decollage monkeys to life, buildings could mug you, and every policeman is a pumpkin, I couldn't believe what I was seeing now. A great white eyeball the size of a mountain with a burning red pupil slowly lowered from the sky, blotting out the massive red sun at the horizon. It must have been at least two miles in diameter, radiating a wave of psychic anguish that hit the world tearfully, apologetically, begging you to look away from it because it could not blink away its searing pain. A foghorn sounded somewhere, all the foghorns of the universe blasting out from that burning pupil as a warning to look away, look away, all is doomed. I snapped out of the trance and held me in as it splashed down. It seemed a gentle enough crash from this distance, but I soon realized that if the eye really was the size of a mountain, then those ripples of water moving away from the point of splashdown were massive tsunami waves and they were headed in our direction. I ran into the main cabin and closed the door behind me, tossed bewildered and agitated Dali into a pile of shredded bedclothes, and leaped up the interior stairwell to the pilot house. I grabbed the mic and shouted into it. A giant sad monster eyeball just splashed down into the sea. You forgot to say over, over, said the bicycle thief. Where did you get a giant sad monster eyeball? Over. That's Humphrey, over. Where did you get a giant sad monster eyeball named Humphrey? Over! Found him! Is all he said as the first 80-foot wave crashed into us and spun the elephant's friend around. We didn't capsize, despite how top-heavy we were, but we certainly did list a dangerous angle for a long time. We rode the wave at the very tippy-top, with the bow pointed ahead like an arrow. I hung onto the wheel, which spun out of control, and I could see before the bow of the ship a shape. A black, rectangular doorway filled with stars fell open like a stage curtain dropped from its hangings to the floor. The waves slingshot us through and into outer space. I could hear the great eyeball cry out in joy as if it were soothed by the cool waters of drowning and the door closed behind us.
Hi, this is Ricky Simons, and thank you for listening to part one of episode two of my continuing story. In the next episode of Absinthium Kingdom, Fubsy meets the mysterious bicycle thief and tries to find out why he's been placed on universal hold. If you like this story and would like to see it continue, please subscribe and rate it with an infinity of stars on whatever service you're using to listen. And please tell your friends or even consider donating to help me make more. You can find more information about Fubsy Pot Valiant and his world at tavicat.com slash absinthium. One more time, that's T-A-V as in Victor, I-C-A-T dot com, tavicat.com slash absinthium. You can also donate directly or join Patreon from tavicat.com. Would you like to read transcripts of Absinthium Kingdom episodes? Oh good, you can at tavicat.com slash absinthium. Feel free to check out the comics I make with Tavisha there too. If you have questions, please use the contact form at Tavicat to send an email. And finally, you can follow me at Twitter by looking up my name there. That's R-I-K-K-I-S-I-M-O-N-S at Twitter. But remember, Simons only has one M. This mistake is made by many. Yay. It's probably good that dreams are inevitable. <laughs>